This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we got a return guest on the podcast. Her name is Elisa Childers. She is a former contemporary Christian music recording artist turned Christian apologist. So if you want to get a little bit more as to that story, go back to episode 318 of this podcast. That's episode 318. It will be in the show notes. She was also part of an all-female Christian pop music group called Zoe Girl back in the day. So if you were a Christian gal back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, you're probably familiar with her. But after her music career, she found her way into the world of Christian apologetics. She is an outspoken opponent of what you could, I guess, colloquially call progressive Christianity. She's the author of the book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. That was the main focus of her previous appearance on the show. We really dug deep into that book. But today we spend most of our time talking about her new book, which guys, if you're listening to this on time, it is out right now. It is in the show notes. It's called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. And so anytime I get a, a longer period than 45 minutes to an hour, I know we're going to be able to just follow wherever things go. So we took a major detour about 45 to 50 minutes inside of, of this interview. We talked about the, the drama with Matt Chandler. We talked about the stuff with Robbie Zacharias, whether or not those people should be, you know, deleted from ministry and, and all the things that they've contributed to ministry and all that. But we talked a lot in this podcast about the deceptions that the lies that were given from culture and what they do to us when they tell us, hey, just be your authentic self. Like, hey, let's just be tolerant. Hey, let's just, you know, take the advice of these influencers who have really not spent any time digging into data or theology and all that. Let's just kind of follow wherever they go. But then we spend a lot of time talking about this, this idea that the Bible is about us somehow that people are telling us, Hey, you are enough when we, we all really know that that's not really the case. But then we talk about happiness. Like what is this this uh, overwhelming sense that we have to be happy and how God is only about our happiness and those types of things. But then uh, towards the end, we talked about a couple of very interesting things, you know, Jesus being uh, portrayed as a super tolerant hippie, but also how that could potentially affect her and how things are going. Guys, we we went so many different places. I almost don't want to tee it up anymore, but you're definitely not going to want to skip this one. Before we get to that, I do want to make sure that you guys are aware of our sponsor for today's show. That is Casey Cattle Company. You've heard me talk about them on the show before. There are a lot of meat delivery service companies out there, guys, and I know some of them are great and some of you use them, but only one of them is United States military veteran owned, U.S. military veteran, veteran operated, and all their beef, chicken, and pork products are produced here in the United States, and that's Casey Cattle Company. We absolutely love these guys. They specialize in Wagyu beef, but that's not the only thing that they sell. Wagyu is obviously just a especially delicious type of meat, but they make steaks, Wagyu roast, pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised Berkshire pork, Wagyu bacon cheeseburger, bratwurst, or bratwurst are ridiculous. And they've also got these gourmet hot dogs, which are basically a, a Wagyu hot dog. It's like a hot dog that tastes like a steak. It's absolutely fantastic. We're so glad that you guys uh, that have tried them already have been able to do so because of the show, but we want to make sure all of you guys can try their products. So you can go to CaseyCattleCompany.com. That's CaseyCattleCompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle 
Kyle to get 15% off your order. Again, that promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E. Put that in at checkout and you will get 15% off your order at KCCattleCompany.com. Guys, go and check those guys out. We love what they're doing. We love everything that they've got going on. But guys, this is a tremendous interview with Elisa Childers. If you're not following her Instagram, uh, if you're not following her YouTube channel, you need to make sure you can do that. That will be in the show notes as well. But guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Elisa Childers, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Now, I got to tell you, after your first appearance on the show, there was one word that most of the guys that sent me messages about the interview used to describe you. And it's a word that I think you're, you're not terribly comfortable with, but it's gangster. And I told you before the first interview that that is my one standard, that if we're going to talk to a lady on the show, she's got to be a gangster. So I guess, why are you so uncomfortable being so gangsterish? Huh? I don't know. Am I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like you, because you, I know you're real straight lace and you know you do things all yeah. prim and proper, but you, you got kind of an edge and it certainly came out in the new book as well. Well, I think, I think, you know, maybe it depends on how you define the word gangsta. I think, um, for, I think that everybody, no matter what their demeanor or no matter how they might engage with other people, if they just know what they think and stick to it and, I mean, of course, having an open mind to change your mind if you're wrong, but but I mean, not backing down. You can do that with any kind of demeanor. So, you know, I'll accept it. I'll, I'll accept okay. it. <laughs> it's like a it's like a polite gangster. It's like a guy that will like yeah. steal your car, but then say, "I'm so sorry," as he's driving away, like that kind of thing. <laughs> That's kind of what it feels like. Polite also, gangster. I like that. Yeah, polite gangster. You should sell T-shirts. Uh, I'll, I'll just take a small cut. But I will say the the funny thing about that is. You were on my show and then I came on your show and I thought for sure I was going to get you canceled, at least get yeah. you a strike on your YouTube channel or something like that. And it didn't work. So, so I guess, are you going to try to like one up me on this show? Is that kind of how it's going to work? I know. I got to be honest. When you came on my show, I kind of, I was, I was bracing for pushback. I was bracing for a bunch of pushback, but actually Kyle, that I got so much amazing feedback on that episode. People just loved it. So yeah, it was great. At the risk of seeming self-serving, I, I get a little nervous about that as well whenever I go on other people's shows because that's when I kind of let my hair down, as it were, and then just kind of like, I'll just go wherever it goes. But for, for your audience, I was a little nervous. It is 50-50 split, uh, uh, male-female. Mm -hmm. But again, they're, they're following you and you're, you don't really go so hard like as as I do you kind of have your own style mm -hmm. so why do you think that resonated with your audience because I mean again I got another one star review on my show yesterday just because people are like why does he act like he knows everything it's like because it's not interesting to listen to somebody that doesn't have a defined opinion on something and I just happen yeah. to do it with you know through this face I think I think the because is because um, people who tend to follow me and people who tend to follow you and others it's almost like because our culture is getting so polarized there's really not a lot of middle ground anymore. So I think that the people who even follow people like you and people who might have a more aggressive style are naturally going to be drawn to the things that I'm talking about because we're really all talking about the same things. We might be doing it with a different style or a different type of approach. But um, because I think because of the polarization, there's just really like everything now is just like there's just two options. It's just truth or it's just this mushy kind of oatmeal fluid kind of deal that I don't understand why that is attractive to people. Cause like you, you know, you mentioned, I want to listen to people who have an opinion, who know what they think. And, mm. um, I, I prefer to learn that way. Even when I'm studying theology, I like to learn from people who are trying to convince me of a particular position so that I can say, okay, that's the strongest, you know, presentation for that position. And then I can go listen to somebody else and make up my mind. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just the polarization and, and just how I think also Christians are becoming more and more sick and tired of the way things are in the in, in our culture right now. And I think that's probably 
when somebody comes along who's just really forthright, it's refreshing. Well, and that's why these kind of mealy mouth passers that will kind of hop into a hot button topic and then hop right back out or something like that. Like I, I think, and I've, I've talked about this for a long time, but there are so many people in the flock that are getting confused. They don't know how to push back against the darkness and culture. And then they go to church and their pastor just refuses to talk about cultural topics, except maybe just mentioning things here or there. But, you know, we, we can spend all day talking about that, but I want to spend the majority of our time today talking about your brand new book, which guys, if you're listening to this on time, it is available. It is in the show notes. It's called Live Your Truth. And other lies exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Now, I already told you on the last interview, you you, you freaked me out there for half a second because you tricked me when it said "live your truth" because I, <laughs> I didn't really read the subtitle and other lies. But I always like to get the author to describe their book in brief. You know, kind of thirty thousand foot view. What is this book about? What do you want readers to get out of it? So this book really was born out of a talk I was giving at conferences, uh, primarily women's conferences, and it was a talk called Pretty Little Lies, and it was sort of addressing a lot of the slogans that are more aimed at women. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, because of my audience being so split, male and female, uh, my publisher thought, well, let's not do a women's book. Let's just try to make this applicable to everyone. So we expanded it out. We talked about more slogans, things that can apply to everybody. Of course, I am a woman, so that's going to be naturally the perspective I write from. But I really do think that a lot of the slogans that we talk about in the book affect both men and women. And it's basically, Kyle, just all of the lies that flow out of this idea that humans are inherently good. I think our culture has bought into this. It might express itself in different ways. But basically, I think people are being taught today that you're inherently good. So what you need to do is just do more introspection, more self-care, love yourself better. And as you do those things, you're going to find the goodness inside of you that you can live authentically in, you know, to the world. And so that, that would be one aspect. But also this book was largely, in my mind, a response to influencers like Glennon Doyle, Jen Hatmaker, and Rachel Hollis, who have mm -hmm. been primarily influential among women, but a lot of men follow them as well. And so these are where these lies are kind of coming from. So we engage with those authors and influencers in the book as well. And we're going to spend a lot of time with, with different quotes and kind of work our way through the book without giving away all the good little tidbits and secrets. But there was something that we were talking about off air and I'm like, oh, let's go ahead and start recording. But you talked about how, you know, we're kind of taught about our genuine goodness, like basically from, from the womb, you know, like we're, we're basically good. But where I feel it's different right now, at least right now in culture, Elisa, is little boys are told the exact opposite. It's like, you're rotten. Your energy is not good for the classroom. Your energy mm -hmm. is not good for church. You're, you're too loud. You're too rambunctious. You're too this or to that. And then as they get older, then they start learning about toxic masculinity and microaggressions. And, you know, when you hear these stats that are bogus, but it's like one in five women on a college campus is going to be sexually assaulted. You're sitting there with four of your friends playing video games and you're like, whoa, which one of us is the rapist? And like, that's right. a crazy place for a young man to be, especially you're, you know, you're years and years away from your brain being fully developed and being able to work your way through that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because there's a lot of really great stuff from the book and this wasn't really part of the book, but what's your thought on that? Because I mean, you have sons, like you've dealt with men in your life and those types of things to where that's kind of what's given to our young men as their script for how they should act. Yeah, that's true. I, I that's it was interesting when you brought that up off air because I was like, yeah, that's really true. Because of course, um, Christina Hoff Summers' book, The War, I think it's called The War on Boys, and just talking mm -hmm. about how really just being a boy is viewed as a negative thing, and then the toxic masculinity causing men, I think, to overcompensate in the other direction and become just just these kind of uh, passive 
female-ish type of uh, presences in their homes and things like that. And then, of course, as feminism sort of deems, it's weird because feminism kind of makes men the standard for good, but also really inherently evil. Isn't that interesting? It's like to be, I I was just watching something with my daughter last night, just this animated series that she wanted to watch. And the lead character is this really strong female who can take a punch, you know, she can beat up all the boys and she's just so this or that. And it's like, I just stopped it. I'm positive. I said, you know, we can enjoy this as entertainment or whatever, but I just need you to understand that there's not, this is not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying women can't be physically strong or that there couldn't be an exception of a woman who could, you know, lift what most women couldn't lift or something like that. But the average woman is not as physically strong as the average man. And if she, if it's presented like there, this is a fair fight and the good and the measure of being a good woman is to, you know, how well you can take a punch. That's really making what males do and are as the standard of good. So it's really like a war on masculinity, but it's a war on femininity at the same time, but expressed through the same means. It's, it's very interesting how our culture is doing that, isn't it? Well, it's also interesting which side tends to use the straw man and which side tends to use the steel man. And so like that side will put someone up like an Amanda Nunes, the greatest female fighter of all time, a woman that could beat up a lot of men in this world. And they will put her up as this paragon of athletic performance to say, see, men and women are the same. It's like, no, 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 no. Like we don't use the exception as the rule on this side. We try to steel man things. So I'm going to put up the overwhelming majority of women and compare that to the average untrained man. You know, we talked a lot about that on your show. But one thing about about the book that I found very interesting to me is it was obvious that you spent a lot of time reading and scanning kind of progressive Christian books and blogs and things like that. And our mutual friend, John Cooper is doing that right now because he's working on a book. And I know you have to do that to, to get a, a, a great accounting. If you're going to steal man an argument and then knock it down, you, you have to be able to do those things. But my goodness, that had to have been just absolutely unnerving to just read this mush, this nonsense over and over. So take me through that a little bit because it's like, that's hard for a lot of people. And that's why most people avoid reading things or listening to things or watching things that come from a perspective they don't hold. It's because they can't mentally get through it. Yeah. Well, it's it's very depressing, honestly. Like I would even send out emails to have people praying for me when I was real deep in several different mm-hmm. books at the same time. Now, for several years now, I try to always be reading at least one progressive book uh, at a time. I'm not reading as many all at the same time uh, as intensely, but it is interesting, you know, going reading these progressive books is really depressing because you know that they're not true and they sound good. So in one sense, there'll be moments, especially if the author is extremely persuasive or you can tell they're very sincere and very earnest or they've been through some sort of legitimately difficult church experience or something like that. Uh, it's, it's difficult because you can see how this hits people. You can actually feel their pain. You can mm-hmm. feel their emotion and 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 what their uh, what they've experienced maybe in the church or in their spiritual lives or even in their struggles with their sexuality or whatever it might be. And then you know that that invokes a genuine compassion, but it's so hard to read because you see that the answers that they're giving and the solutions they're giving for a lot of those things are so destructive. And ultimately, I guess for me, it's it's so hard to to see these 
sort of uh, rabbit trails be gone down because you see that this is really ending in spiritual devastation and the, with eternal consequences for people. And so it's hard. And, and the mockery. I mean, th that's that's why, you know, you mentioned my style is a little, di a little different. I've, I've really tried over the past few years to really tamper sarcasm mockery. Now I'm not, I'm, I have friends who do great satire. I have friends who have podcasts that are, you know, they, they are real rhetorical. And I, I'm not saying those things are inherently wrong or bad. Um, I think there's a place for all of that. But for me, I've really tried to just keep my tone very even because of how assault, I don't know if assaultive is a word, but when you're reading yeah. these progressive books and they're just harping on the church and bashing the church and mocking the church and mocking pastors, mocking Christian culture, um, it's it feels like you just keep getting kicked in the gut. And so I, I've even tried to just like, let's let the argument stand or fall on their own. And, you know, because I know what it feels like to be the recipient of all that. Right. And I think that goes back to personal style because one thing that I've changed here recently, even in my own mindset, because obviously I'm more aggressive, uh, you know, sarcastic, and I use those things as weapons. But Seth Dillon, uh, the CEO of the Babylon Bee, was talking about this. It may have been on Joe Rogan or uh, with Ben Shapiro or something like that, but he was basically talking about a lot of these ideals are, are propagated because people aren't mocking them. And so, like, it's we should be pointing at these things. We should be mocking them and we should be doing it publicly because, you know, they, they released a video called Christianity Light. And it's like, you know, you get all the, the good stuff with Christianity, but you don't have to deal with all the sin guilt. And so it's like you can have Christianity and your sin, too. Like, that's kind of their thing. And you even had an A.W. Tozer book or A.W. Tozer uh, quote from your first chapter that kind of talked about that. They're, they're using the phrases and mottos of culture to basically push back against it. But I, I do want to read this one quote from, from chapter one, because I really think that this kind of kicked off a lot of your arguments. And I will say this as well, just as a side note, very early on in your book, this book felt very, very different than another gospel. Mm. I felt like that the, the edge on your sword was sharper on this one. I felt like you were, you were going at this a little bit more aggressively, which I appreciated, but let's read this <laughs> quote from chapter one. Today, we have authors, influencers, and life coach gurus peddling their personal transformation stories as models for others to follow. Their advice is frequently based on very recent life-altering decisions that seem to make them happy in the moment, but have not stood the test of time. So let's talk a little bit about that because we are very attracted to influencers. I say we as people, we're attracted to these people. Like we're very attracted to this idea of like, okay, I was really, really, really fat. And then I've only been disciplined for the last three months of my life. But now everybody should listen to me for my advice. And I tell people before, don't take financial advice from broke people. Don't take workout and diet advice from people that are severely overweight. Do not take relationship advice from people that have been divorced three times. But here we are, we're buying these things hook, line, and sinker. And it's typically coming from these people that just recently came out as ex-evangelical. And yet we, we don't look at them and say, okay, well, this is going to be a major issue for you later. It's the same thing when you talk about a 13-year-old girl that wants to have her breasts removed. And then they ask her two months later, how does she feel? And she doesn't regret it yet. And they look at that as, oh, it's a positive. This right. is a positive affirmation. It's like, can we talk to her in five years? How about the woman that decided to chase her career into her mid-40s and never thought about settling down, having a husband, having children? Can we talk to her when she's 60 and she mm. looks around and it's just her girlfriends that are all winos and it's not, you know, anybody that that she can like pass on her legacy. But talk to me a little bit about just like our attractive, you know, our ability to just be so attracted to these influencers. Well, that's the main thing. Like if we take the three I mentioned, Glennon Doyle, Jen Hatmaker, and Rachel Hollis, all three of those influencers have millions of followers yeah. and they, their entire brand is built around telling you how you should live, telling you the best way to live, the best way to pursue things like love and justice and all of these things. 
And every single one of them, and they just represent many, many more. They're not the only mm -hmm. ones, but all of them have had major life circumstances happen that I, I mean, certainly I'm not judging the fact that they've had life circumstances. We all do. We all go through difficult times where we have some kind of major life change happen from time to time. But that, but the context of their life changes, like for Glennon Doyle, it was coming out of the closet, leaving her husband and marrying uh, a, another woman. Um, Jen Hatmaker going, you know, she literally writes a book called Fierce, Free and Full of Fire, talking about how free her life is, how wonderful it is, how great it is. She's figured it all out. And in the midst of that book releasing, sadly, and I feel terrible for her because we don't know the circumstances, but she was in a divorce. And um, mm. again, I don't, we don't know the details that was never, as far as I know, released or, or talked about. So I'm not going to say, you know, that was her fault or his fault. I don't know. But that's not the time to be taking major life advice from somebody who's not getting their information from scripture or from time-tested truths that stand the test of time, that match up with reality. Um, and I think that was the main point that I was trying to make is people can go through difficult things in their lives and give advice, but they better be going to an objective standard for that advice and showing you how they're trying to implement that in their life. Maybe that could become inspiring to see that happen. But if you're if you're in the middle of a divorce and you're telling people how to have great relationships, I mean, maybe it's time to, I think in the book I say, let's hit the pause button on that hot mess and mm -hmm. see how it all pans out after 10 years, because these are not time-tested truths. These are things that feel very good. Like you said, you asked the girl who had maybe transition surgery two weeks later, she doesn't regret it. Well, what about when she's 30 and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, whatever the ramifications are, are hitting her in her life then, especially with statistics showing that I think it's something like 70% of kids outgrow their uh, gender dysphoria by the time they're 18. And so, you know, we have lost that in our culture. I think the sense of waiting and being patient because of social media, because of just our uh, instant gratification culture, we're just so used to getting the, the end result right away. Yeah. We can't just say, Hey, let's see how this pans out. Cause I, I think the stat may be even closer to like 90%. Of that, these people I think that's have, right. These, yeah. these tomboy girls, they grow up to be beautiful young ladies that are very attracted to men. And it's just like, that's, that's almost 100% of the cases. But there was one thing and this may be splitting hairs a little bit, but it did catch me as funny from chapter two of the book. Cause this goes into kind of what you're talking about. Well, I'll just read the quote here. Although social media can certainly do a lot of good. The phenomenon has also given birth to a myriad of self-made Bible teachers and bloggers who shepherd millions of followers. Many of these personalities have drifted into progressive Christianity and are now leading their flocks away from the historic gospel. So here's what caught me odd about that. The first part of that statement is you and I. Yeah. Self-made Bible teachers and bloggers that shepherd followers and those types of things. But we're just not the latter, you know, where it's like where we've drifted into progressive Christianity and all those different things. So talk to me a little bit about that, because I don't think your point with that message was, hey, you know, you need to go to Bible school if you're going to talk about the Bible on social media. Obviously, I don't think that's really your message. But is the message more so about the size of these audiences that these people that obviously are not grounding their ethics and their advice in a Judeo-Christian ethic or in a biblical reality? Is that kind of the, the point you were, you were making with that? Well, I think the main point I'm trying to make there is that social media is— I mean, in and of itself, it's morally neutral, right? It's it's sort of something that you can use for good or you can use for evil. And um, there's certainly nothing wrong with if somebody hands you a microphone to use the microphone to preach the gospel or to tell people about Jesus. And we are called as Christians to make disciples, right? That's the main thing. So there's different ways we can do that, whether that's online or in person or in our families. Um, and so, yeah, I think the main critique of that statement there was that a lot of these 
influencers have drifted into progressive Christianity. They've rejected biblical authority. They've rejected the historic Christian sexual ethic. They've rejected a lot of things that have really been core to historic Christianity from the beginning. And because they're funny, because they're um, because they're really engaged with their audiences, and, and I really think this is maybe, I mean, I don't know, because I'm a woman, I might think it's more pertains to women. I, that could be, I could be wrong about that. But I just know, like when I had my first child, um, it's an incredibly isolating time for a woman. You're by mm-hmm. yourself all the time with this little baby human who can't talk back to you, can't give you any sort of intellectual stimulation and can't really even love you back, you know, for, for a long time. And you're all alone. You're exhausted. This, you know, my, and of course my babies were not easy babies. So, you know, you got the physical exhaustion, the, the mental exhaustion, and it can be real, like, even back when I had my babies, social media was kind of becoming a thing, but it wasn't like it is now. Mm. Whereas now you can find yourself in that phase of life when you're isolated and you want to talk to other people and you just hop online for such and such as, you know, Monday live stream and you feel like you're part of a community. And so it can be very seductive in that sense, because a lot of people, I think, come to these social media communities out of loneliness. They're looking for friendship. They're looking for community. Um, and then they don't realize that this whole community together is drifting far away from truth and they may not even realize it's happening. Well, and also you go to these groups that have no standards, they have no restrictions, and that right. seems really, really uplifting. Now I'm not, you know, wired as an artist, obviously you were cause your background in music, but every time an artist, cause artists constantly will say things like, I don't want to limit myself and I, I want to do all these different things. Well, the moment you pick it, you pick an artistic medium you've limited yourself because there's only so many, you know, sounds you can make with a drum. There's only so much you can put on a canvas that is about yay big. And so the moment you pick your canvas or your medium, you have limited yourself in a certain way. And a lot of these people don't realize it's like, you want limitations. You don't want this free for all, especially in your spiritual life. You want those guardrails there. Um, I do want to move on to to chapter three because there were two very, very rude things about this chapter. Okay. The first thing is the chapter is called leprechauns. And as a ginger, I'm very triggered by that. I don't appreciate (laughs) it. I feel like you had me in mind whenever you picked out uh, the name of that chapter. So I don't, I don't like that at all. The second thing. Like a microaggression or something. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And I felt it. I felt it macro. (laughs) But the last line of the chapter was so rude, Elisa. It said this. Okay, time to rip off the Band-Aid. Reader, I'm here to tell you, you are not enough. So how dare you tell me and everybody else that reads this book that we are not enough because culture, Elise, I don't know if you know this breaking news, we are enough. And I've seen plenty of pastors with their really cool shoes and their really nice duds tell me, gosh, you are enough. And then in my, the back of my head, I'm like, well, then why did Jesus need to die if, if I was enough? But tell me why that we shouldn't live by that, that we are not enough. Well, first of all, because it's not biblical, but let's start even just with the practical implications of it. Think about, you know, I I get when you hear something like you are enough and maybe your kid comes to you or somebody you love comes to you and they're real down on themselves and they're, you see this beautiful person in front of you and they're like, oh, I'm so ugly or I'm so this. And, you know, you want to say something like you are enough. You know, you're perfect just as you are. That's that can be mm. really tempting to want to say that. But the problem is that when we say that to somebody, we're, we are essentially putting a burden on them by saying, you actually have to solve all of your own problems. Whatever you need to fix what you actually broke is 
is already inside of you and you just need to find it. And I think that that is a message of bondage because like I, I tell the story in the book and not to go back to being a young mom, but when mm. I had my first baby and she was just really uh, not a happy baby, I've talked with her about this. She was not happy. <laughs> and um, I, I was blowing it. I just, I knew there was nothing I could do to make her happy, to make her stop crying. Uh, I, I remember like kind of punching a wall. I was just so tired yeah. and exhausted, all these things. And if somebody would have said, you are enough, I would have just, <laughs> I would have wanted to punch them <laughs> right. because I knew that I wasn't. I knew yeah. that I needed something outside of myself to catch the overflowing cup, you know, that, that mm. I was at that time. And so I think that's the first point. And then the second point is biblically, and, and I think this in our culture, kind of, we kind of started with this, but, you know, you mentioned that boys are kind of this implicit message that who they are is wrong or bad. But at the same time, it's interesting though, that a lot of the self-helpish kind of books that are written, even to men are trying to correct that in a in an, a weird way by saying you're mm. perfect just as you are. Um, of course, you know, don't be all these things that you actually innately have in right. you. But you know, that's that's the beside the point. But I mean, if we think about even how that springboards out, this idea that you are perfect just as you are, you are enough for yourself. All but you know, it's nothing outside of yourself. You need to complete you, to heal you, to redeem you, to reconcile you to God or anything else. It's all already inside of you. Think about the implications of that for morality, because mm. if you think about you have this, you know, according to culture, you have this innately good, you're kind of born either neutral or innocent, right? You have this goodness in you that you need to recapture or reclaim. Well, if your desires are in conflict with what people say you should or shouldn't do, then according to culture, the should or shouldn't of society, I mean, that's fluid, right? That's going to be, that's not uh, set in objective reality, according to culture. So your desires being inherently good, you know, you have this goodness inside of you, you should go with your desires over the should or shouldn'ts and, and listen to your desires. Whereas the Bible tells the completely opposite story. We do have a conflict between should and shouldn't and our desires, but we're told to die to ourselves. We're told to con be conformed into the image of Christ, to be transformed, renew our minds, put off the old man. There's all this language in the Bible talking about how we actually have to do a massive course correct uh, throughout our lives. I mean, this is the process of sanctification the Bible talks about. When I think that gets into a discussion about authenticity, which you, you talk about in your book, I think it's chapter five, and you get into these people that are like, I just want to be my authentic self. But if you were to ask them to define what that even is, they wouldn't be able to do it yeah. because they're on a journey of self-discovery and yet they're trying to tell you and society that they're just living their authentic life. Like, oh, why wouldn't you want somebody be, to be able to be who they are? So I guess talk to me a little bit about people trying to live as quote unquote their authentic self as it were. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the bit, that's a big one. And that was actually for me the hardest chapter to write because I think that there's a lot of, I mean, I almost hate the word nuance now because anytime somebody doesn't like what you say, they just say you don't have nuance. Right. <laughs> um, and, and honestly, sometimes I think they just think you're being too clear. <laughs> That's really right. what they mean by using too much nuance. You, but, I've said this before. Nuance is the word that dumb people use to sound smart. Like it's right, the right. one really, really hard word. And they're like, oh, it's just nuance. It's like, no, it's not. You're just dumb. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, I had, you know, so I felt like I had to bring in some nuance on this because there is a sense in which defined properly, we should be 
living authentic as Christians. And what that means is being genuine. You know, don't fake it when you go to church and pretend you're living victoriously and everything's great if you've had a really bad day. I mean, we need to be there for each other. We need to confront each other in our sin, walk with each other in our struggles and pray for each other in our sorrows and our pain and all of that. So in in that sense, I think the church could use a good dose of authenticity. However, that's not what culture means when they say live authentically. Because remember, the cultural grid is built on this idea that you're, that humans are inherently good, that your desires are always right. And so if you think about the way culture would define authenticity, it would really be more like following your desires. That's how you live truly authentically, is to not push down or try to kill or change the things about you that might be in conflict with what people think you should or shouldn't do. And so it's it's sort of like authenticity becomes a license to sin. It becomes a license to sort of do whatever you want, like the free-for-all you mentioned earlier. And that has devastating effects. I mean, just one of the authors that I deal with a lot in that chapter is Glennon Doyle, who wrote her book, Untamed, which is largely an apologetic for her leaving her husband and marrying uh, another woman. Mm. and. In, in the book, and I, I put this, I can't remember which chapter of my book I put this in, but her whole justification for the trigger that finally made her say, okay, I'm going to leave him and I'm going to marry her, was her being a mother. And she quotes a Swiss psychiatrist, Carl Jung, and basically he's saying, you know, there's nothing worse you can do for your kids than let them see your life be unfulfilled. That's a paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me. But she said, so, so I would leave him and I would marry her because I'm a mother and I have responsibilities. Good Lord. And it's just, you know, I remember reading that and just like even having to put the book down for a second and just being like, oh my gosh, (laughs) just, oh my gosh. And I can see if I put myself in the position of like a 25 year old young married mom, oh man, I could, that's like, that's like candy. That's like Turkish delight and, you Mm -hmm. know, Chronicles of Narnia right there. That's just that sweet little candy that tastes so good and it feels so good. But man, what devastating consequences. I have since, um, it's just even in the last year, I've met two families who read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and then one of the spouses decided to go live their truth, leave their family, and just blew up the lives of everybody around them. And they're still acting like they're, they're the ones who are living the most authentically. They're the ones who are doing the most good in the world. And these, you know, they're oppressed family who won't support their life decisions. They're just, you know, stuck in toxic religion and all these oppressive systems. Mm. And it's like, it is just the most well-crafted lie. And social media just, just exacerbates it. When as a kid, you don't, cause you know, I can say this cause I was a kid once. I didn't care that my parents looked fulfilled. I, I was selfish. Why? Because I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So like, I want to see parents that are like literally wringing out themselves so mm. that I can be happy and comfortable because I'm a stupid kid. Right. And it's not until you become an adult where you're like, you start not thinking about yourself and your own survival and your own happiness. You start thinking about the happiness of other people where you're just like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is so crazy. Like I, my dad just retired after working 43 years in a factory to provide for, for my family. Like in, in a lot of times it was very thankless and it wasn't until I got older that I was like, man, this is a major sacrifice to do something that you hate. But he was, he was wringing himself out for the benefit of his family. But whenever you hear people say like, live your truth and live authentically, how about we say like, live responsibly, live reliably, like live like somebody that everybody else could depend on as opposed to, Hey, let's be as selfish as we possibly can be. Because how can you create a virtue out of a woman that left her family 
to go pursue, regardless of the fact that it was a lesbian relationship, she pursued a relationship outside the home. I remember a guy that I used to be in ministry with years and years and years ago, he left his wife and three boys with the secretary at his job. And before they would have sex, you know, off and do their little thing, him and the secretary, they would sit down and they would pray for his wife and his boys, right? This level of depravity that wow. you can't even imagine. But like that, this was 10 years ago where that was like seen, you know, universally as dude, that's really, really crappy behavior. But now right. he, he could point to 10 different <laughs> philosophers that would tell him what he's doing is okay. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's kind of like in, in the book, I talk about one of the lies being you should put yourself first. And, and I think that's really at the core of maybe this whole authentic living authentically thing is our society has sort of switched. Like you mentioned, like my grandfather had three jobs, like digging ditches and doing right. plumbing work. I mean, nobody, nobody's like wakes up every morning like, oh, I really want to go dig a ditch today, right? But right. he did it because he loved my grandmother and his big his biggest life dream was to leave her a paid off house when he died. And he did it. He left her a house fully paid off. and But he worked three jobs my mom's whole life. And I mean, that used to be considered virtuous. That used to be considered mm. something. But I think one of the reasons for that is because long ago, it used to be that the family, your, your family was what it was all about, right? That was what right. your life was about. So if you had to go out and work a job you didn't like, that's all right. We'll get through it. We'll just, we'll, we'll work through it because I'm doing this for my family. But our society now has flipped to where it's personal fulfillment is the highest virtue. And if you can fit a family into that, you know, and that's fine. That's great. Some people can do that or whatever, but really it's about personal fulfillment. I mean, I've been kind of alarmed um, to see a trend of women who just don't want to have kids, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I don't know. I think that that's not natural. And I think that that is unbiblical. It's kind of like um, C.S. Lewis, you know, talking about how, uh, the devil wants to abolish humans and any way he can do that, you know, abortion, whatever he, he's going to try to do that. But even this trend of like, well, I just don't think I want to have kids. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that it's maybe sinful for somebody to never have the desire to have children, but it's a trend. It's something that's catching on mm. to where almost you look at young women today and you wouldn't assume that they ever want to have kids. It's just, you know, it's almost <laughs> kind of an anomaly to say, yeah, I want to have a lot of kids that in fact, my friends who have more than three or four kids get treated very oddly in culture. Mm -hmm. Like people kind of act like they're being selfish for having so many kids or something like this. And it's just, I think everything's just flipped on its head today. Well, the the reasons that a lot of these women give for why they don't want to have kids are so vapid. It's, it's literally like if they were, if you were to pour true serum in them, it's, they want to look good in a bathing suit for as long yeah, as possible because right. they've made an idol out of spring break. They've made an idol out of pool time, right? And they know that they they don't want stretch marks. They they don't want to have trouble losing the saddlebags whenever they whenever they get back trying to get back in shape. It's that. It's I'm I'm trying to go after this career because they've been convinced by the second and third and fourth wave feminist lie that they can be fulfilled once they get the corner office, yeah. right? And so like again that that goes into a whole a whole different area that I'd love to talk about uh, with you later. But I do want to kind of come back to to something in the book because we're, we're talking about authenticity. We're talking about focus on self. And so all that leads to a word that people don't realize doesn't mean what they think it means. And that's happiness. Okay. Mm. So you spend all of chapter eight talking about happiness, but you set up chapter eight with the very, very last quote uh, from chapter seven. And it's this, I hate to be the one to say it, but God's ultimate goal for you isn't your happiness. 
you monster, Elisa, because <laughs> I've been convinced by modern Christendom and by my own theology, right? First Kyle 2.4 says, God wants me to be as happy as possible. Why are you trying to ruin my day, Elisa? Why are you yeah. trying to take my <laughs> happiness away from me? Well, it's interesting in the book because we say, you know, the lie that we're engaging with is that God just wants me to be happy. And this is something that I think our culture has really bought into, even people who aren't a part of Christian culture. In fact, there was, I, I referenced this study in the book in 2005, uh, where I think it was Barna, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they interviewed a bunch of American teenagers. Now, these weren't necessarily Christian teenagers, just the average American teenager. And this is where the, the term moralistic therapeutic deism was coined, mm -hmm. because it was mm -hmm. discovered that the average American teenager believed that God just wanted them to be happy and good, you know, just wants you to be nice to each other. And he's going to, you know, he's not going to tell you who you can sleep with or what you should or shouldn't do with stuff like that. But, you know, if you need something, he'll help you out. He'll be there. But otherwise, he's going to kind of stay out of your business and just let you live your life. And you just, you know, you just try to be happy and be good. And so that that was where that term moralistic therapeutic deism came from. And I think that now, fast forward all these years later, those teenagers are adults now. And I think that our culture has largely bought into that this idea that the point of life is to be happy and to avoid suffering. And if anything causes you discomfort or causes you to suffer, you should avoid that thing. And or, that's the you know, thing that's wrong. That's You're not wrong. That's, that's wrong. the thing that's exactly. wrong. Exactly. Right. Like get that part of your life fixed so that that's not in your life. Anything that challenges your presuppositions, anything that would uh, challenge you to change something about yourself, you know, though that discomfort should be put aside. Recently, uh, I was talking in a Facebook group with a woman who is a college teacher, a professor. And she said that one, and she's a Christian woman. And she said, one of the most difficult things that she has to engage with is that most of her students really, they've had their feelings validated for so long that they literally just can't engage with any sort of opposition or difficulty at, at her particular college if they don't want to take a test or they feel anxious about a test, they can actually go to a safe room and not have to take the test. <laughs> and and so they've never, oh. here's the thing though, and this is, this is what really stood out to me about what she was saying. She said they truly are fragile. You know, we have these these derogatory terms like snowflakes or whatever. But she said, but but they really are fragile because they've mm. never had to engage with something that has challenged their feelings. Their feelings are just constantly validated. And so what that has produced is a generation of people that can't engage with suffering. And so in a lot of the progressive Christian literature, you'll even hear, I, I even quoted one in the book where they'll say, you know, the, these Christians talking about the benefit of suffering or talking about the the deep uh, lessons you can learn in suffering, you know, that's just, that's evil and wicked. And we need to put that aside and uh, pursue happiness. God wants you to be happy. God doesn't want you to have to go through suffering. And when you, when you say that God led you into a time of suffering, you're really making him into an immoral, you know, deity that, that would do something like that. And so there's this whole twist on it. Whereas if you look at time-tested truths, this is where I bring up people like Elizabeth Elliot and Corey Ten Boom and Johnny Erickson Tata, who have experienced legitimate deep sufferings in their life. I start the whole chapter out talking about my friend Maydeen, who's actually the wife of Bible scholar Craig Keener. Maydeen Keener spent 18 months, she's from Congo, and she spent 18 months as a refugee in her native in her native land. And it's a harrowing story of what she went mm -hmm. through. But when you read her book, her and Craig's book, 
you see that there's this beautiful, deep, abiding joy. And, and there's a beautiful, deep, abiding joy about her when you're just around her. There's something about her that is different than a lot of other people. There's a depth there that a lot of people don't have. And that is directly a result of the suffering she went to, having to cling to the Lord, her son almost dying, um, just having to rely on God for absolutely everything at every moment. And I think that in our Western culture, we have become so affluent, so kind of you know fat and happy, I guess you could say, that mm -hmm. we want to shun all suffering. And you can tell, like, this is the one that gets under my skin a lot because yeah. I, I have, I, there, there is such benefit to suffering. Biblically, there's benefit to suffering. You interview anybody who's walked with Christ through deep times of suffering, the loss of a child, these are the people that have deep wisdom to share. They have a joy that is that goes so deep that a lot of Christians don't have because they haven't gone to the depths of those sorrows. And, um, and so I think that it's such a lie to tell people that God just wants you to be happy because then you miss out on the opportunity of walking through something where really all you have is God. And, you know, I don't even know what that's like to, to say that truly, that all I have is God. I've never, Kyle, had a day where I didn't get food. I didn't, mm -hmm. I've never gone a day without water. So I don't truly know the depths of those sufferings, but I've been through things that were challenging for me. And yeah. I know that those were the times when I was closest to the Lord. Those were the times when I produced probably the most fruits of the Spirit. And it's a mystery. I don't know how it works or why it works that way, but it certainly does. Well, you and I have never had to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But people that have had to pray that, like these are people that smile ear to ear constantly yes. because they've seen God provide over and over and over. I mean, you spent all of chapter eight talking about the fact that we got fat and rich yeah. and like how life becomes so easy. But the thing that's so interesting about that, about people that get fat and rich, they still to a degree almost yearn suffering, yearn yeah. for suffering. And yet progressives, leftists, people like that, they try to make the pursuit of grit or of resilience the sinful thing. Yeah. Like that's somehow a sinful desire. Why would you go the harder path? God has a much easier path for you. It's like, how can you read the Bible and, and think to yourself, man, if I just, you know, follow some of these dictates and some of these red letters in here and pretend as if those are somehow more important than the rest of the Bible, because if God's part of, if Jesus is part of the triune God, they're all red letters, but that, that's for another day. But like, how can you read the Bible, read the stories of the Bible and think to yourself, God just wants things to be easy and nice yeah. for me. Like, who had a really nice ending to their life, especially, you know, after Jesus passed away, like these weren't people that just like ease their way, you know, through milk and honey land on the way to the grave. And so I do find it to be very, very hard. I, I know uh, in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, there's a lot of discussion about that, you know, going back to what you're talking about, about the fragility of these children. And that's one thing that if you do grow up in an affluent area, if you have done well for yourself, when you have children, because I think about this all the time with a two-year-old and a six-month-old, oh man, those boys are going to be rough and they're going to be tough. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that they realize that the house they're living in, the cars they get to ride around town in, that's not normal. That came from blessings. That came from hard work. And they're not going to start out there, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're not going to start out from there and then build off of that. It's going to be much, much different. Um, so I, I could tell that that was a very, very hinge point for your book. I guess that's kind of why you put it there in the middle. But as we start getting into the latter half uh, of the book, 
you start hitting a lot of, you've, you've been taking out sacred cows left and right. You're just lightsaber and all these, these sacred cows. <laughs> but then in chapter 10, this, this is perhaps my favorite section of the entire book. And I'm not going to read this entire quote. I just want to read the first part of it because this is the thing that is the biggest bugaboo in the world for me. So I'll just read the beginning of this quote here. So guys, you'll have to go get the rest of the book to find out what else she says. But it says, friends, if you are a Jesus follower, he is in charge. Jesus is the boss of you. And he says, the Bible is also the boss of you. Not only that, but the Bible isn't about you. Okay. So this goes all the way back to a sermon that I saw Matt Chandler deliver. I know we're not allowed to say his name anymore, but Matt Chandler delivered a sermon years ago at Stephen Furtick's church. What Stephen Furtick was doing, thinking it would go well for him to have Matt Chandler come in there. But Matt Chandler came in and he woke up that morning and he chose violence because he yelled at these people and basically said, the Bible is not about you. You are not David in, in the story of David and Goliath. But Elisa, we think we are. We think we're David in the story of David and Goliath. We think we're the hero. We think we're Peter at his best and not Peter at his worst. We think we're Paul after the Damascus Road and certainly not before. And it goes back to this idea of when people look back on history, when they look back on the thing, the, the atrocities that were happening in the 20th century, in Cambodia, in Germany, in the Soviet Union, all these places, and we love to look back with this reverse chronological snobbery, to use a C.S. Lewis quote, and think we would have been the ones trying to protect the Jews. Right, right. We would have been the ones that would have been saving people from the killing fields. We would have been the ones that would have been giving our last bit of bread to somebody in the medieval times that was dying of plague. But it's just not the case. But it's all wrapped up in this modern milieu about the Bible is clearly about us. So is it about us, Lisa? Like, <laughs> is the Bible about us and our happiness and everything else? Well, I, I like to go to the scene where Jesus, after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus and he comes across those two disciples who don't recognize him. And the, the scriptures say that he began to read to them from the scriptures, showing all the scriptures we revealed about him. And so Jesus is, is essentially saying there that the scriptures are all about him, and they really are. It's like that's the hinge point, right? We have the Old Testament looking to the cross, and then the New Testament looking back from the perspective of the, you know, it's like the cross is the hinge there. Mm -hmm. And and can we talk about Matt Chandler for a second? Let, <laughs> because, yeah, go for it. Because I, you know, th there have been some things he said that I've disagreed with, certainly, but this last, you know, thing that came out where his his board and, and working together, honestly, I've never seen, in my opinion, a more beautiful, biblical handling of a situation where, it, I mean, his board had his back. They're protecting his ministry, you know, giving him time to, I mean, it's like everybody wants to whine and complain about all of these scandals. And then you have something that's handled early and really well. And then everybody just wants to trash him like he's, you know, like, like he's superhuman or something. And anyway, I don't know. I was just, I was impressed with the way that that was handled by him and his board and all the people involved, even from the woman, you know, for people who aren't familiar with the story, um, even that first woman kind of going directly to him as the Bible would have her do. So I don't know. I thought, I don't know what you think about it, but I thought that was handled well, pretty well. But well, let's talk about that a little bit, and I'm okay with with getting off uh, on different tangents or something like that. So, obviously, I've been a Matt Chandler fan for for the for the longest period of time, but I call balls and strikes on people. Like, yeah. I give people one 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 strike. That's it. Like, I if you show me that I can't trust you once, it's like, dude, there's seven billion people on the planet that I can probably trust over you next time. The thing that was odd to me about this story is the narrative that came from Matt Chandler did not include the word sin. He never oh, okay. once said, okay. he never fair. once said sin. And I was like, that's odd. 
was there sin involved or was there not? I think he said unhealth at one point. There's some unhealth in me. And I'm like, that's a weird way of saying sin, sir. But then the other thing is the, the narrative that we were given was that both. So again, for anyone that didn't know, like there were some DMS between him and this woman, apparently Matt's wife was aware of the DMS the Mm -hmm. entire time. This woman's husband was aware of the DMS the entire time. And apparently the DMS were comedic in nature. Right. They were they were not right. sexual in nature. They were not relational in nature, but it was the frequency that was bothersome to people. So I guess where I sit on it is if that's the if that's actually what happened, which I, I have my doubts entirely. If that's what happened, you tell the girl that complained about it to go pound sand. There's no there there is kind of where I was coming from it, because I feel like to not become the next uh, Mark Driscoll or to not become the next Carl Lentz or something like that, that they went over their skis, way out over their skis Mm. and created something out of thin air. Because regardless of how we feel about it, this is going to follow him for the rest of his career. Like, oh, remember that one time when you were forced into three months to go, you know, basically sit in the corner and think about what you were doing. And a lot of people would say, Publicly, you only apologize for what everybody knows. You don't apologize for the stuff that nobody knows. And so for me, I think there's way more here than what meets the eye. This, the, To me, the situation stinks to high heaven. So mm-hmm. I don't know how you, what you feel about that. Well, I thought that he had said that it, it went into where in Ephesians it talks about rude and coarse joking. So maybe there, mm-hmm. I kind of took away from that, that maybe there was maybe a sexual, not that they were being sexual with each other, but uh, maybe okay. that the joking had some like sexual overtones that went over the line. That was kind of what I read from it. But you know, that's, I mean, that's valid. <laughs> They're probably not going to tell the public everything about everything, but from the appearances, taking everybody at face value, it seemed like it was handled in a way that was biblical, you know, and maybe it was- I, I certainly hope so. I, I yeah. think obviously I'm the, I'm the pessimist, you're the optimist, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. why whenever we meet, we can be friends because I think it's always, the sky's always falling. But yeah, I, I want well, to Well, I took that us on was, a tangent there. You can delete that if you want to. No, like, no, I actually love this because I want to talk about this stuff because yeah. the, I want to hit these hot button issues because I'm the same person that will say that just because you've made a mistake, it doesn't mean you get your ministry back, but it also doesn't mean you're necessarily unable right. to do ministry for forever. Cause there are people right now that are just, they literally wake up every single day mad that Mark Driscoll has a church that he's leading and they're not listening to his sermons from today. They're not talking to him personally. They've never met him personally. And yet they're, they're trying to tell him that he is now disqualified from, from, you know, doing anything ever again because of some of the nonsense that, that he did right. whenever he was running Mars Hill. And so, yeah, I, I, well, Again. and I would probably say that, yeah, I, I agree with you that not every sin disqualifies you from future ministry. But I right. think when, you know, this is where we might disagree, is like when the the sin is so abusive in nature like his was without yeah. any actual repentance expressed publicly, I think that's mm-hmm. what people struggle. That's what I struggle with, honestly, with Mark yeah. Driscoll. Is it just, there's no evidence that there was any true repentance in submitting to any kind of a um, a, an oversight to make sure that people are protected so that doesn't happen again. That right. that would probably be the way I would approach that one. Do you mind if I blow up our interview even further Let's and go even it. further into this tangent? Okay. I, when I, when I had you on the first time, I blew up the interview in the first five minutes. So we made it like 50 <laughs> minutes in. Okay. So let's talk about one of the most egregious examples and that's Robbie Zacharias. Obviously for yeah. those of you that don't know, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, this guy basically used ministry funds to take advantage of women sexually. He had all these massage parlors all over the world where he would make these women, you know, uh, please him sexually and all these different things. And then he would use spiritual abuse on them basically 
basically saying you helping me release is serving God, like that kind of stuff. Like it's next level nefarious. The only worst stuff I've heard of is when Catholic priests were literally washing out the little boy's mouths after they mouth raped them with holy water. That's like the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life and using a crucifix to, to, you know, rape, rape a child. So it gets worse, but let's talk about Ravi Zacharias. So I feel like Christians are split exactly down the middle on this. And I'm very, very much so on one side of this. So I want to know where you end up here. So Ravi Zacharias has taught me so much through his books, through his speeches, through his podcasts. Whenever I talk about every worldview having to answer four things, origin, meaning, morality, destiny, where do you think I got that from? That was repackaged age old wisdom in a very short form that Ravi Zacharias brought to the world. And people have been led to Christ by Ravi Zacharias, by all the things that he's produced, by all the things that Ravi Zacharias International Ministries produced. There are a lot of Christians today that think we have to delete Ravi from the collective memory of Christianity. That, you know, the, 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 the fruit of the tree is rotten, but even though it looks good because the roots of the tree are rotten. Whereas I'm like, I'm going to continue saying origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Do you know why? Because it's true. Because it's capital T true. I don't care where I learned it from. Because if we're going to start playing that game, then guess what? No one's ever going to be able to listen to another song or watch another movie. Because the level of depravity of some of your favorite artists and some of your favorite directors and actors is something that you could not even fathom. So if we start going down that road, we have to delete everything. So so where do you kind of land with these people to be like, can we not get anything from Mark Driscoll's old sermons? Can we not get anything from, well, we can't get anything from Carl Lentz because he was basically, you know, uh, he was empty the entire time. But from these people that have been canceled, as it were, like that we can't value them anymore, where do you land on that? Oh, yeah, no, I think you can. And especially the true things they said. Um, I'm, I know there were a lot of things that Mark Driscoll said that I loved. I was like... Mm yeah, man, he's literally saying some great stuff. And that's still great stuff because it's true stuff. Um, I think, you know, with the Ravi thing, that might be in a different category for me. And I'll, I'll give you two reasons. So um, our friend Frank Turek had yeah. one of his books Ravi had written the foreword to. Right. And Frank made the decision to remove the foreword mm-hmm. in the subsequent printings of the book. And in a podcast, he said the reason that he did that was because of the nature of Robbie of Robbie's sins being predatory uh, as they were. Frank said it's he he even said in this podcast, "There's nothing that I would change." I mean, everything Robbie said was true. He said mm-hmm. true things, and those things still stand. But the reason I'm taking his forward out of my book is because I don't want any of his victims to ever have to read his name when they're just opening a book. And so I think there's a, there's a valid uh, viewpoint there, just considering mm-hmm. the people who have been really hurt. But I'll tell you another thing, Kyle, with, you know, Ravi's books were very story driven. There were a lot of stories in his books. And after what happened, it made me question, honestly, the truthfulness of a lot of the stories that he told, the anecdotes that he came up with. And so in a lot of ways, I thought, I don't know if I want to recommend those books because I don't know that those stories are even true. It, It kind of brought the whole thing into question. Whereas if he had written, for example... A, a systematic theology, I, I wouldn't, I'd keep that on my shelf. I would recommend it if it was good, even despite, you know, what what happened. But um, I think because of the nature of the way he wrote and communicated, it just called it all into question for me. Now, the things that he said that were mm-hmm. true are still true, certainly. And um, as, you know, in, my, in another gospel, I write about uh, the fact that when my faith was in utter crisis, the first voice that I heard that was speaking truth was Ravi's. And I that right. is true. And that's still a true part of my story. In fact, 
um, when people ask me, you know, who was the voice on the radio that you talk about in your book? I say yep. it was Ravi Zacharias. I have no I wrote Ravi when that. I was reading that book, I wrote Ravi in the in the margins because I was like, it's gotta be Ravi. Yeah, it was. And so, you know, God used that in my life. I can't deny that. Um, but yeah, I think I think with Ravi, it was sort of a different category because of the the story driven nature of it. And then, of course, just the amount of people that were so that were abused by him and used by him. Mm. And uh, so I think, you know, I think each one would have to be sort of analyzed on its own, probably. One probably analyzed by each individual person because here's some egg on my face moment. Uh, as you were talking, I realized that I did kind of a self-censorship thing. So I have, I have a book list on my website, the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. And I had, I think it was Jesus uh, among other gods was on the, the book list in the Christian section. And after all this came out, I did remove the book from the list. And the reason why I did was because, not because I didn't feel like what he wrote in there was true anymore. It was because I was like, well, that's needlessly problematic. And I've got enough problems that I create on my own. And I've done that with several people. I just removed, uh, Eric Greitens is a guy that, that wrote a book. You know, he was a uh, former Navy SEAL, was a Navy SEAL for like five minutes. But then, you know, he wrote this great book about resilience. I recently took it off because some of the things that he's done as he's ran for different offices uh, have been just very, very strange. And it's like the inclusion of that book is almost more damaging. But I also have books by Machiavelli on there. I have The 48 Laws of Power, which has some of the most anti-biblical stuff that you could possibly have because there are truths to be gleaned from things that don't come from a Judeo-Christian worldview. So um, is there anything else you want to kind of say on the, I guess, big pastors? Because I did want to talk to you about that on the last interview. I don't know if we ever got to it, but I think there there is some things to talk about because that is a, a thing that carries some heft. But well, actually, you know what? I'm going to blow it up even further. Let's talk about church hurt. Okay. okay. I, think you, I think you talked about it earlier in this in this interview. Church hurt. Yeah. So sometimes church hurt comes in the form of a person, of a man that has wronged you, a man that has abused you in some way, shape or form. Sometimes it's, you know, something else that happened, you know, with someone that you knew there. But sometimes church hurt is just the church saying, no, you're not allowed to do that because it's sinful. That's right. And so like when we when we say something like church hurt, everybody hears something different because the woman that was raped by her pastor, That's had, right. that has a very specific meaning. But to the person where they're like, no, you can't have a homosexual relationship and still be, you know, in good standing at this church and no, you can't marry your boyfriend, dude, at this church. That's not going to happen, right? So talk about church hurt a little bit. So I, I can't remember if you actually talked about it in the book because I I know I've heard you talk about it before, but go, go and flow on that a little bit. Well, I don't think I got too into it in this book. And the, the book I'm working on right now, which is a book on deconstruction, we're having to talk about it a lot. Um, mm. So, yeah, no, I mean, you, you, I think what you just said is exactly right. It's in the progressive Christian movement, you'll hear uh, spiritual abuse thrown around all over the place. And that could literally mean anything from, like you mentioned, a young girl being raped by her youth pastor. Mm -hmm. All the way to being told that Jesus died on the cross for your sins is abusive. Yeah. So it, you have to analyze where, you know, because there are lots of cases of legitimate spiritual abuse. I've walked through it myself with friends. Um, I was just even thinking about yesterday. I mean, there are legitimately abusive situations where environments are created, where it's all propped up around one guy and he's got all the power and I don't know why, but so often these types of guys can be very, um, very much like bullies and just very self-focused, very narcissistic. And that can, that can really cause so much genuine damage to people. I was just talking with a guy maybe a couple months ago, 
and his wife had deconstructed. Now he's a strong mm. Christian and he was just kind of just this broken, like, I just want to love my wife. I don't know how to bring her back into the faith, but she's deconstructed. But then he started to share like three, the three church experiences that they had as a married couple, every church like went downhill. There was some kind of scandal. And then they ended up at the, um, I forget the, is it Harvest Bible Chapel, that big one that, that, uh, kind of came down and she just doesn't know who to trust. She doesn't know mm. where to turn. And like, I have so much compassion for that. But on the other hand, you'll hear stories of people saying, well, I was told as a child that hell was a real place and that traumatized me and psychologically damaged me. And now I need counseling and years of recovery from toxic religion and the abuse of that doctrine. And so you got to go, okay, these are two very different things. And mm. so, um, yeah, I actually think church hurt is a better phrase than spiritual abuse because spiritual abuse, the, the claim of spiritual abuse isn't always legitimate. Whereas if somebody can say, I was hurt by the church, whether the reason for that was legitimate or not. But um, that does, in deconstruction, that seems to be the primary trigger. But like you mentioned, it's all tied up with, in these other things. Maybe somebody being told, no, you can't live together before you get married, or right. um, it's healthy to wait <laughs> and biblical to wait until you get married to have sex for the first time. Um, these are perceived as abusive and oppressive doctrines that people apparently, you know, in the deconstruction movement need to psychologically heal from. And I just don't buy that. And so I, I think that there's um, there's a really fine line. That's why I've, man, if we really want to blow this thing up more, <laughs> talk about the-, the <laughs> We're kind of, there. We're there. The, um, the, the whole trauma-informed, you know, ab abuse and trauma-informed world. There's a whole social media phenomenon of, mm -hmm. of this. And um, almost always what that means is that they have bought into the idea that anything that you have felt harmed by is genuinely harmful and therefore abusive. And there's no, there, there's no questioning of what actually happened or, or what it may be. And I just think that's really dangerous. Uh, as far as I understand, I could be wrong about this, but in the SBC report um, that came mm -hmm. out, or maybe it was at the, um, the, the meeting, the annual meeting where they passed a, they, and I could be wrong about this. So people double check me, make sure I'm not making this yeah. up, but they um, passed a, a bill where any sort of sexual contact between a pastor and a parishioner is deemed automatically abusive because of the power differential. Well, here's the problem. You have a 35 year old woman seduce a 27 year old young pastor who's unmarried and she's a victim and he's going to jail. Like they're, yeah. they're criminalizing these things. And I think that's dangerous because you're assuming that because there's a technical power differential that that's going to necessarily mean it's a, an abusive uh, interaction in nature when it could just be yeah. a moral failing, not like just a moral failing, but it could mm -hmm. be in the category of a moral failing and that needs to be dealt with a certain way. But not every moral failing is an abusive situation. So well, even that category, Lisa, comes from a postmodern world rubric yes. or worldview where it talks about perceived power. Because here's the thing that's interesting. I don't know if you know this breaking news. If you look around, if you go looking for microaggressions, you will 100% oh, find goodness. them, yes. right? And so that's the thing is like, when you have all these people going back to what you were talking about earlier that are very sensitive, that are very snowflakey and all these different things, they are going to find opportunities to be hurt. So what if, what if, 
you know, I we won't use Matt Chandler as the example again, but in that scenario that you just brought up, what if the man, when they took a picture, like they were taking a picture in a line, put his arm around her shoulder or put his arm around her waist, you know, just to take the picture. Could she have perceived that as a sexual advance? Right. Because even a sexual advance is like rape to, to somebody that thinks that like, if somebody says, Hey, where are you from? That is somebody giving you a racist microaggression because they assume that you're not like them. So it's the, the worldview comes from this postmodern witches brew of nonsense. So the fact that the SBC would even, and again, we'll, we'll check and make sure that, you know, that was kind of what, what it was, but man, that that's, they don't realize where this is poison. Like you're, you're kind of weaving this into everything you're doing already. Yeah, and I go to an SBC church, so I'm not against the SBC. I didn't, you know, I wasn't saying that at all to be like, uh, they're trash or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I, th- I see those as dangerous moves. And the whole microaggression thing, I can't remember if we talked about this on your podcast last time, but um, as a woman, I think it's this whole talk about microaggressions is very dangerous, what we're, the positions we're putting women in, because I'm told that if I'm jogging, let's say I'm jogging at night and um, a man is jogging toward me and I'm, if I go to the other side of the street, it's a microaggression if the man is a minority, but if it's right. not, then it's not a microaggression. Well, I'm sorry. I don't care who it is. Mm-hmm. I'm a woman jogging at night and I see a big man coming at me. I don't care what color he is, what ethnicity he is. I'm probably just going to avoid con, you know, any sort of interaction and go to the other side of the street for my own safety, not not at all because of any sort of an ethnic category, anything like that. And so I think that's where it's dangerous is women are being told no matter what, like it could be perceived as a microaggression if you do, if you, you know, protect yourself in a in a situation where it's you're not making the decision based on ethnicity, but just the fact that it's a male, you know, I, I'm probably just going to avoid that interaction. Well, part of it comes from how do you perceive that person and how do you perceive their motives from the beginning? For me, I, I look at most people as a threat. I've seen enough things and I've and I've been a part of enough situations where these people were taken advantage of because they looked at everybody in their in their orbit as somebody that they could trust. And that, that is strangers that are walking along. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're buried in their phone and then they have a gun in their face because they, they weren't walking with confidence. They weren't walking as if, you know, Hey, I I could take care of myself if something were to go down, but it also comes from the scripting that you have inside of you to look at a certain group of people or a certain person in a certain way. So I I do want to kind of bring this back to the book because you, you, you brought up something that I thought was very interesting. I highlighted this in the book because I was like, there's something more here than I think you even put in the book. So this, This is chapter 12 of the book, and you begin with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. This is in her work, Let Me Be a Woman. And so let me read this quote here. What sort of world might it have been if Eve had refused the serpent's offer and had said to him instead, let me not be like God. Let me be what I was made to be. Let me be a woman. And now I will say it took me a second or two to recover from laughing so unbelievably hard by literally one of the dumbest sentences that I've ever read in my entire life that Eve should have just said, let me be woman. And somehow the entire, uh, you know, span of humanity would be different. But almost immediately after that, Elisa, you start describing how you had this very sizable uncomfortability, you know, competition, negative feelings, maybe even a little bit of hatred towards men in general. And I thought that that was very striking to me because I haven't really gotten that sense in our interactions on our shows or or elsewhere that you kind of had this. 
And I know that there are women like that. And I know some very, very personally that just, they almost have this negativity and they don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's because they, they watched a, a grandmother be taken advantage of by their grandfather. And they're like, never going to let that happen to me. Or, or maybe they, 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 you know, bought into some second or third wave feminist lie. So talk to me a little bit about that because you're talking to a mainly male audience and men can feel this. Men aren't the most astute people when it comes to recognizing their emotions. Sometimes they do need the chart where they can point at the color that, you know, best describes their emotion. But talk to me a little bit more about that because that was, that was frankly a little shocking to mm. know that you had these, these super negative feelings towards men. Yeah, I did. And I talk about the chapter is called Chips because I had this chip on my shoulder up until I was about, I don't know, maybe 20, something like that. I, I can't remember exactly how old I was. But I, I don't, it, it started with just feelings of competition with men. I was not a super girly girl. You know, I was one of those maybe what you might call a tomboy. And so I felt competitive with men. Um, I felt I don't know where it was coming from because the men in my life had pretty pretty much been awesome. My grandpa was amazing. My dad was probably way more of a feminist than I'll ever be. <laughs> um, I had um, just good men in my life, good pastors. And yet I wanted to outdo guys. I remember even as a child going over to my best friend's house and having push-up contests with her big brother and trying to like do more sit-ups and push-ups than he could do. And even like we would have him put us in headlocks and try to fight our way out. And, you know, I always felt like if I could fight my way out of the headlock, I was, you know, I was doing great and I could beat the guy, you know, and that was kind of, I guess, where it started. I don't know, but it grew and grew and it even affected how I read the Bible. So I would read stories like Deborah. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think in the book, I say I would read it with venom, you know, when yeah. Barack comes to her and says, you know, I'm not going to go into battle unless you go with me. And I'm, you know, of course, I didn't understand a lot of the context. And I'm just thinking, oh, he's scared. So he needs her to go with him. And yeah, Deborah, you go show him how it's done. And it was just really unholy, this this sort of chip that had grown on my shoulder. And, um, and it was just one of those, and I tell the story in the book, it was just one of those things where the Holy Spirit just shined the light on it. And I was at a, a I, I don't know if it was a worship team rehearsal or something, some kind of a church situation. And I asked a friend to pray for me. And I just said, I really, I want to confess this, that that the Lord has really convicted me of this. And we prayed and it was just one of those gifts that you don't always get. You know, God doesn't always just answer your prayers like that and just mm -hmm. totally remove something, but he really did. It was just like this root got yanked out of my heart. And I'm so thankful because I really... Um, can I can say truly and honestly, I love men. I love what men are. I love what God created them to be. I love having sons. I love, I, I, I don't feel competitive with men anymore. And I think that might even be what Elizabeth Elliot was talking about with Let Me Be a Woman is she's, you know, if you read the whole book, you'd probably like it because she was saying basically like for Eve, she was just trying, it was like she was trying to be something she wasn't. And she, if she would have just, understood what God had made her to be, you know, maybe she wouldn't have eaten the apple. Although I kind of think that there's, I, there's a reason the serpent went for Eve first, because I think God creating women as mothers, I mean, our bodies attest to the fact that we were created to bear children. And that is going to come with an emotional intelligence an IQ for what an individual might be feeling that might be more fine tuned on average than the average guy who's going to be wired more for community, more for the, a larger group to, to, you know, help with that. And both of those things together 
are very beautiful, but I think both come with vulnerabilities. And I think for women, um, now I get in a lot of trouble saying this, but it's just my opinion. It's what I think. I think this is what the Bible teaches, but I think women are, brace yourselves, more deceivable than men. Mm. <laughs> and the reason I think that is because we're more intuitively um, can, in tune with people's emotions, but that's a good thing. That's what makes us good mothers. That's what makes us good managers of our homes. That's what mm. um, I, I think. That's God put us in charge of all the new humans, and specifically all the all the men that are going to come out, you know, in the next generation. And we have to have that finely tuned thing. But that is going to make us probably have more of an empathy, more of a compassion naturally toward an individual which is going to be, we're going to be more easily manipulated, more easily deceived on certain things. And I think there's a reason that the serpent went after Eve. You're so bigoted. No, but like in, <laughs> in that mindset, I think it's important. When I was reading Owen Strand's book, uh, Christianity and Wokeness, it, he said something, it was kind of a throwaway line that shifted my my viewpoint on Eve and the apple. And it wasn't that Eve ate the apple. It's that uh, Adam didn't protect her from the serpent. Yeah. Because what the hell was Adam doing? Right. Right. Like, you know, like, what was he doing? Where was he? Because he should have been doing Well, he was right role. there. He was, the Bible says he was right, standing right there. Right. And so it's like, where was he mentally? Like, what, what was he doing? Like, he was just kind of like, yeah, I guess, you know, take a bite and tell me how it is and then give me some. Like, it, it's, it goes back to this thing that I hate, which is where the guy is always, you know, Al Bundy or, you know, uh, the, you know, Phil from Modern Family or something like that. It's always the dope. It's always the guy waiting around for something to happen. It's never the guy that's leading. And so I may be drawing a line of connection here that isn't there. So don't just play into it if I didn't. But that what we just talked about in chapter 12 and kind of this competitiveness with men reminded me about something back in chapter 11, because you actually have a section title in chapter 11 called Super Tolerant Hippie Jesus. And I sent you a picture of this because I literally wrote vomit like right next to the title, because like, I know that. I know that there are a lot of people that think Jesus is this really good looking, soft featured Danish guy that just loves them no matter what. And the thing about it is, is I wonder, Elisa, if some of your viewpoints on manhood was because you got a cultural mouthful of, of masculinity and what masculinity is in American Western culture, four wheel drive trucks, big muscles, chasing women, inappropriate jokes, beef jerky, that kind of stuff. And you never saw Jesus as not just lamb of God, but also lion of Judah. Because I say this all the time. If I were to walk into some random coffee shop or church or something, maybe not church, because you know they're 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 primed for it, but just ask them, hey, who are the manliest men that you can think of? Like from from your family, from your friend group, from you know, history. And so you're gonna get guys that are gonna say George Washington or Teddy Roosevelt or or authors like Ernest Hemingway or Jack London. Maybe they're gonna say like Tim Kennedy or Jocko Willink. I bet you none of these guys would say Jesus of Nazareth because he's been presented in this effeminized way. So is it possible that growing up in the church like you did, growing up in the, the denomination that you did, where Jesus wasn't presented as this perfectly masculine man, and maybe that kind of led to a little bit of your feelings? It could be. I'm, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking back. Uh, I know we talked about this on my podcast, that one of my uh, the things that really formed at least how I would envision Jesus was that old six-part movie series, Jesus yeah. of Nazareth, which, you know, mm -hmm. had a lot of great stuff in there, certainly. Sure. But, you know, Jesus was real skinny. He was just, you know, real effeminate. And he had these like bright <laughs> blue eyes. And um, so, you know, certainly we're all formed by stuff, whether we realize it or not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's a that's a possibility for sure. I think that 
I mean, it, this is an interesting thing too. As I study the deconstruction movement, a lot of the people who are sort I mean, it's hard to say there's even leaders of the deconstruction movement because you can literally just like throw a dart at TikTok and you're going to hit a deconstruction <laughs> platform with hundreds right. of thousands of followers. I mean, there's, there'd be no possible way to even say who the leaders are. But, you know, the, the ones who are writing books like Jen Hatmaker, it's interesting, Jen Hatmaker, Derek Webb, Glennon Doyle, we're, we are all about the same age. So I'm just looking like, what the heck happened to us in the 90s that everybody's like deconstructing from? So there, there were certainly some things in the air, I think, in church culture in the 80s and 90s that um, were a little wacky that probably contributed to a lot of false ideas about who God is and what the church is and all sorts of stuff. So with that in mind, I, I want everybody to realize something, because I'm sure you, you've probably thought about this as well. If you talk about TikTok, obviously that is owned by the Chinese Communist Party. And so the, the TikTok in China is different. So in America, it's, you know, kids doing really, really dangerous things, these, these dorky dances and all these other different whatever things. It's comedy. But the TikTok that's in China are people doing like breakthroughs in, in science or mathematics or engineering or something like that. So they're, they're kind of giving scripts to, to the different cultures. But wouldn't it be interesting if we were to realize that a atheistic regime that wants to rot away the United States from the inside would mm. give us this app that is not only highly uh, addicting, but that they would elevate via the algorithm the voices that are deconstructing. Mm. So you might say, why does this deconstruction turd that has literally never read a book, how do they have hundreds of thousands of followers, but this person that is like theologically adept and, and deep and all that, they have hundreds of followers. Interesting. Guys, it's part, it's part of a design. The same thing yeah. here with uh, the people that are here in Silicon Valley. Why are some of these, these people that spread the, the love of Jesus and spread the gospel, why aren't their messages getting out there? But magically, when they start deconstructing or becoming like a leftist Christian or they're the Christian that's actually pro-abortion, their their page just explodes. Isn't that so unbelievably interesting? That so is that's interesting, just, yeah. Yeah, that's something for people to think about that the Silicon Valley folks, they come from a leftist worldview that goes back to Karl Marx and those types of ideals, which means that our system is rotten to the core and needs to be destroyed. And China obviously is down with that. And so they're dropping these little seeds of discord into our culture. So there's your conspiracy theory rant uh, for the day, guys. But just that's something for, for you to think about. But to kind of maybe put a bow on the new book. And again, guys, it is in the show notes. It's fantastic. It's well worth your time. It's not just another woman author writing for all these squishy women Christians. Like, no, this, this is for everybody listening to this right now. I want to read this quote because I found it very interesting. Consider the way Jesus invited people to follow him. Rather than coasting them with soft music and emotional appeals, he often seemed to be trying to talk them out of it. He certainly never held back from telling people the truth. He wasn't exactly worried about his message being seeker friendly. Now, this is unfair because I know we're wrapping up in time to bring up this big topic, but I've become very, very wary. And, you know, I'm going to talk about this here pretty soon with a lot of different interviews about these mega churches that play these dramatic songs towards the end of the sermon, right before the prayer. And you have these people making this dramatic appeal to raise their hand. You come from the world of worship, so you know how to develop a song. And I don't really know anything about music, but to do the song in a way to where it builds and creates this crescendo of emotion. And then people will raise their hand and then they'll do the prayer. They'll make eye contact with the pastor and then they'll leave. And there's no heart transformation. There, there's no fruit of discipleship in their life. They raise their hand to an emotional appeal. And so I'm asking, we have so many modern churches that are very, very concerned about the problematic teachings of Jesus. So they stick with the easy stuff and then they slap the label of seeker sensitive on it. So talk to me a little bit about that because man, I'm, 
I'm terrified for some of these people that go to these enormous churches that raise their hand and they're, they're literally not a Christian. They just had an emotional experience. Mm. Oh man, I don't even know where to start with this one because it's something I've been thinking yeah. a lot about. I mean, just the model itself. Certainly it's not wrong or sinful for a church to be large, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not the problem. The problem is the motivation. Um, you have churches that are not focused on making disciples. They're not focused on teaching the Bible. They're not focused on helping to guide Christians in a culture that has lost its mind. What you have are churches who are hiring strategic growth experts to tell them how to appeal to a certain demographic because they've decided, oh, we want this particular kind of person to, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to focus on this particular kind of person. And then they'll give that person a name, much like you do in marketing. You know, in, in, we talked about Becky, I think, you know, yeah. about in, in Christian music, how they'll, you have to write songs for Becky, but it's like, um, they'll, they'll do the same thing where they'll name the person something. And then they hire these strategic growth experts where you've got, I've been in churches where there, there's a whiteboard in the waiting room where they're going to say, okay, this is how many people we had attend. And this is how many our goal is for next week. And this is, and it's just like, man, if there was a table, Jesus would overturn, it would be that one mm. because it, it's the, it's it, the, when the motivation is butts in seats and not making disciples, we've lost the plot and we're not actually making disciples, which is why I think now this is my opinion. I don't have data for this, but mm. I would suspect that part of the fallout, part of this deconstruction movement is that it's a lot of people who went to churches and maybe, maybe they had an emotional experience. Maybe they raised their hand. Um, but they, they were not disciples. They, they were not mm -hmm. truly people who know and have trusted in Christ. Now, I'm not certainly not painting with such a broad brush that I would say that anybody who might say they're in deconstruction is not really Christian. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is a large part of this movement, what you see people deconstructing from something they never had constructed in the first place. And so mm -hmm. you have, they're, de they're deconstructing a culture or they're deconstructing whatever their experience was. But it's so often you listen to the stories and you can't find the one time in their story where they say, I realized I was convicted by the Holy Spirit that I was a sinner. I cried out to Jesus to save me. You don't hear that in deconstruction stories. You hear like, well, I loved Jesus. I knew Jesus. I, I followed you. But there's, but that's real vague, like their conversion. Mm -hmm. You don't hear that, that narrative of like, I was a sinner and I cried out to Jesus to save me from my sins. And and I think it's because in our churches, that's not the goal. The goal has become in so many places just getting the numbers. And that is a dangerous game. Well, and and I always, I've, I've made this shift and I'll talk about that on some future episodes about, you know, being careful whenever I talk about these, these things as homogenous groups. Obviously there are enormous churches that could be put in the mega category that are vehemently uh, about discipleship making Absolutely. and making sure that people's salvation is real. And so I, I was very dismissive in how I talked about it for a very long time. And so I've, I kind of made that shift, but yeah, if your goal is butts and seats and you're looking at it as some sort of a thing that will help you with your I guess, annual report at the end of the year saying you had this many butts in the seats and how that, you know, kind of leads to all these different things. I think, I think that becomes a systematized approach. And a lot of these churches, they require so little of the mm. people. And I'm not saying you should make the barriers to entry into the kingdom of God high, but I am saying whenever you bring them into church, the acceptance of the gospel 
is the highest, most anti-self thing you could possibly do. And so why do we describe it as if it's this like, huh, it's just another decision that I made. Sorry, Calvinist, but it's like, it's just another decision that I made in a myriad of other decisions. People will labor over the decision of where to go to college or what city they want to live in post-college than they will about deciding whether or not they want to be a disciple of Jesus. And so I have some problems with people like making it seem like it's this easy thing, like, no, no. This requires everything of you. Look yeah. back at the first and second and third century church. It requires everything if you're going to follow this way of thinking. But we'll go and wrap up the book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Fantastic read, guys. You got to go and pick it up. We'll make this the last question of the day. I know you got stuff cooking for the future. I, you, you mentioned some more books you're working on. Maybe there's some conferences, some classes. I saw that I think you maybe turned another gospel into like a, like a, a yeah. video study type thing. So let's talk about the stuff that you've got uh, coming out here in the near future and, and what does the, the farther away future look like for Elisa Childers? Yeah, well, we did just release a six-week study curriculum based on the book Another Gospel. So it's there's a participant's guide and then a DVD series. And the DVDs are real. I'm really excited about them. They're beautiful. The Tyndale, my publisher, they rented out a coffee shop for three days and just mm -hmm. filmed all these beautiful scenes with Jay Werner Wallace and myself and John McRae from the What Do You Mean YouTube channel. And we just talked through some of these issues. And then the participant guide will walk your small group through the claims of progressive Christianity, what the Bible has to say, how we can be thinking, lots of discussion and applicational kind of things. And so um, you can get that on Tyndale or on amazon.com that's available. And then right now I'm co-writing a book on deconstruction with Tim Barnett of Red Pen Logic. Um, he's mm -hmm. got the TikTok in the, in the YouTube channel. And we uh, have been hip deep in deconstruction for about a year writing this book and we're, we're landing the plane on the book. It's been a gnarly beast to write because people mean so many different things when they use the word. And so we've, we're, we've kind of come up with a definition we're going to defend and then talk about the movement. And so, I mean, our main thesis is deconstruction is bad. <laughs> that, that would be yeah. the, the most simple version, yeah. which is very controversial because there's a lot of Christians trying to paint it like it's a good thing. But right. um, at any rate, so that's going to be coming out in about a year and we don't have a title for that yet, but that's kind of what I've been working on. And then I guess after that, I just don't want to write a book for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to, like I don't want anybody to ask me about a book for like a year and a half at least and then maybe I'll think about it. <laughs> okay. So is there anything that you haven't mentioned on any other show mm. that as a bonus to the guys that have stuck around for us like what's what's kind of clinking around in the back of that big old brain of yours? Like g give us something special. Oh man, that like that, that you put me on such a spot to think of something special to give. If if there's not um, anything special, just tell me I'll to go pound sand. Okay, I'll okay. give you something that I haven't talked about with anybody. So, and this might be relevant to your audience too. So uh, I, I like to read just different things that have nothing to do with anything that I do for ministry. And so right mm. now I'm reading the memoir of Bob Odenkirk, who's the actor from Better Call Saul. Right. And it's just all his, you coming up through the comedy scene in LA. And it's, you know, it's an interesting book. It's kind of fascinating. Some of the people he talks about, but there's this really interesting scene where he's talking about Chris Farley. And of course, I think Chris Farley died of a drug overdose. Is that right? Or some, something like that. And so he, Odenkirk is talking about how everybody could kind of see it coming because Chris Farley was spinning out of control. It was just getting worse and worse. And so there was this one scene where Odenkirk is in a hotel room with Farley and Farley's just spinning out and he's talking crazy. He's doing comedy bits and he's, he's high and he's drunk and all these things. And then he gets real serious and he starts crying. Hmm. And he says, he calls him Odie. He says, Odie, do you think Belushi's in heaven? 
and he gets real serious and crying, and he knows, you know, that he's spiraling. He knows his life's probably not going to be very long. And Odenkirk is an atheist, so he's, you know, he's like, well, I didn't want to break it to him, you know, in his mind that, you know, God doesn't exist and there is no heaven or whatever. So he kind of just said, oh, yeah, probably whatever. But I just thought that was really interesting because it just goes to show it's it's when people are at the end of themselves. These are the transcend, transcendent questions that they're asking, even Chris Farley. Like you could tell that at the end of his life, this was something he was thinking about. Is heaven real? Does God exist? Are all these things true? And I think that brings us back around to the worldview questions. I think, just, I think there's such a push out there from people who are atheists or people who have outgrown religion and you know, kind of make this thing about it. But really... These are the questions that everybody's asking. This is why everybody has an atheist uncle who they couldn't bring up the gospel to until the uncle's on the deathbed, and then, they, then they're open to hearing about it. And I don't know, maybe that would just encourage us to, to keep in mind, like, we're not crazy. <laughs> there are, mm. um, there, there, these are the transcendent questions that people are asking, and everybody's asking them, uh, especially when they're at the end of themselves. And I just thought that was a really powerful scene in the book there, so... All right. Great place to leave it. Well, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? That's it. <laughs> all right. Alisa Childers, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed the return appearance of Elisa Childers on the podcast. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So before we get to the notes for today, don't forget to support the sponsor of today's show, KC Cattle Company. Go to kccattlecompany.com. That's kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off your order. Again, that promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E for 15% off your order at kccattlecompany.com. But let's go ahead and go into the links for today. I've got a link to the book that we talked about today, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Also a link to another gospel. We've got a link to her website, her YouTube channel, her Instagram, her Facebook, her previous appearance on this show, and also my appearance on her show. So she's gotten a lot of positive feedback about that. So you can check that out there as well. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>